Welcome to All Villa, No Filler, a podcast all about Aston Villa, the world's greatest football team. The 24th of October, 2022. Professor Unai Emery. Professor Emery opened the University at Villa Park. And what a year it's been. This is a celebration of one year of Professor Unai Emery. Hello, everybody. Please like and subscribe. This celebration of Unai Emery, one year to the day since he joined Aston Villa. I'm recording this a day before because I'm actually about to fly to Barcelona for work. I'm going to Spain. Um, uh, I, I wish I was going to give thanks um, for that country giving us uh, Unai Emery, uh, the Basque Bond, as I call him. Uh, he's looking very suave these days, isn't he? I could see him as the Bass James Bond. Uh, and I would go and do uh, the uh, the Camino Trail, which is that famous religious trail through uh, the Basque country in northern Spain. Um, just to give thanks to Unai Emery, give thanks to that region, that part of the world, for producing so many fantastic football managers, so many fantastic football players. They're absolutely tearing it up in the Premier League at the moment with Mikel Arteta as well, uh, Xabi Alonso over at Bayer Leverkusen and Unai Emery. Wow. One year of the greatest football manager I have seen as an Aston Villa fan. I have supported this club since 1992. My first game, Ron Atkinson, Norwich 3, Villa 2, November 1992 in the Premier League, and Villa that season finished second. And that, to this day, is probably the best team I've seen at Villa. You know, finishing runners-up and almost winning the Premier League, it can't be too bad. Paul McGrath, the greatest Villa player I've ever seen, played in those years. Dean Saunders, Dalian Atkinson, the late, great Dalian Atkinson, RIP, justice for Dalian. But it's been a long time of Aston Villa always underperforming. Aston Villa never been a team that lived up to its potential. And you still hear it today in the voices of pundits when they talk about Villa. It's still almost a bit like Aston Villa, you know, yeah, they're up there, but there's almost this kind of sense that they're just going to fall away. And to be honest, the evidence of the last 30 years is that when we did it under John Gregory, we got to about February in 1999 when uh, Villa were pushing for the Premier League title and then we absolutely fell away and collapsed and Man United went on and did the treble. Martin O'Neill in about 2008. People forget, but in February, we were right up there competing for the title with Chelsea and Man United. And again, fell away. I think twice under O'Neill, we fell, fell away in February. So the expectation would be with Aston Villa that, you know, we can maybe keep pace with the likes of Man City and Arsenal to a point, but the likelihood is they're going to get away. Now, look, this is the real world. We know that they've got the deepest squads, the strongest squads, particularly Man City. Man City have the strongest squad in world football. But I don't think we've ever been at this stage of a season since 1992 where we've had a manager of the experience and all-round quality and excellence of Unai Emery. What we are witnessing at Aston Villa right now is something very special and very unique. Now, I'm going to take you all the way back a year ago. The dark days of Steven Gerrard, 3-0 against Fulham. And I'd been to see us lose 3-1 at Selhurst Park a few weeks before. And I remember watching Aston Villa that day and thinking genuinely, and I'm not someone who really backs myself as somebody who could go and manage a football team in the Premier League, because believe me, I couldn't. But I watched Villa that day and I thought, I could structure this team better than what Steven Gerrard's done. I could structure this team better than what Gerrard's done. And I don't say that lightly, but genuinely, Villa were absolutely clueless. Douglas Louise was on the bench. John McGinn was having to play the Douglas Louise role. We had Jacob Ramsey running out wide and leaving massive gaps out in the centre because he was having to, I don't know, for some reason run out wide all the time. The, the structure of the team looked absolutely clueless. The defenders would pass it back to each other over and over again, trying to keep possession. Palace would put us under pressure, 
and we'd have nowhere to pass it out to. There was no out ball, nothing. And it all accumulated when we lost 3-0 at Fulham. Fulham are like your best mate who come along and slap some sense into you when you need it, when you're making poor decisions in life. They did it to us when we lost in the playoff final, which has turned out to be a bit of a hidden charm, actually, as gutted as I was on that day. It led to the rise of Dean Smith and one of the best seasons I've ever seen at Villa and that amazing promotion we had. And again, the drama of staying up the season after, though I never, ever want to relive that again. And then Fulham come along last season and batter us three at Craven Cottage. And before that night was out, I remember saying to my mates going, I think we're going to lose this bad tonight, 2-0, 3-1, something like that. Lo and behold, it was 3-0. And... You knew it was coming because Villa had just looked, we lost, lost it. Nasef Sawiris walked out that night and immediately sacked Steven Gerrard. And it was the eventual downfall of Christian Perslow. Perslow, who did a lot of good at Villa. Um, there's a lot of things I really don't agree with. And there's still some things that I think uh, we're living with right now. I look at the shirt, BKA, I don't like it. Uh, Castor, it's not a good, it's not been a good brand though. In fairness, there were other, other big clubs that had it certain decisions around the club that I think I'd put back to Perslow. So, um, look, I'm not going to belabor the point on all that, but Villa were not in a good place. And Sawiris just went out and said, I'm taking charge now. And it could have gone hor horribly wrong. You know, he could have gone and got a manager in, spent a lot of money and it didn't work. But instead he went and got somebody who had a proven track record of excellence at clubs that were of a historic level like Aston Villa. And by that, I would say a Valencia, a Villarreal, a Sevilla. I would put Aston Villa in that ballpark. And those clubs have all had much better recent success than Villa. Sevilla have won the Europa League endless times, right? Valencia have been to Champions League finals in uh, in living memory, have been competing at the top of La Liga, though they've really fallen off under Peter Lim in recent years. But Valencia under Unai Emery, he was there at a time when Pep Guardiola's Barcelona were the greatest football team on the planet, the most revolutionary football team I've ever seen, the best team I've ever seen, with the best player I've ever seen. And nothing's ever convinced me otherwise. That Barcelona team with Lionel Messi, Pep Guardiola, Andres Iniesta and Xavi were the best of the best of the best. And he also had to compete with an absolutely incredible Real Madrid team managed by Jose Mourinho. And he got them to third in that table year after year. Champions League qualification year after year. So that was a hint of how good he was, right? And then he goes to Sevilla and he wins the Europa League three times in a row. You cannot be anything other than an elite coach if you win the Europa League three times in a row. You are an incredible coach. <laughs> you're, not, you're not just sort of like average. You're elite. You are. Um, you know, are you as elite as a Pep Guardiola or a Jurgen Klopp? You know, I, I hear this term, it's semantics. No, he's not won the Champions League like Guardiola has, and he's not won the Champions League like Klopp has. And he's probably, you know, he took on a P took over PSG, won all the domestic trophies. Champions League didn't work for them, but I don't think that's a Unai Emery thing. I think that's a PSG thing, because look at them ever since. They just lost 4-1 at bloody um, Newcastle. They've got Luis Enrique as manager. He won the Champions League with Barcelona. Carlo Ancelotti was there. He couldn't win it with them. And Carlo Ancelotti always wins the Champions League. You know, you could put anyone in there and you could have the best players in the world as they have done for recent years. And they're not going to win it because whatever it is, PSG are going to PSG. So look, Emery came in and immediately it was like a breath of fresh air. And the one thing I would say about Emery is that my track record of watching him with Sevilla and Valencia in particular, I didn't really get to see him too much of Villarreal where he won the Europa League again and got them to the semi-final of the Champions League. But what I did see with Sevilla and Valencia was a manager who reminded me a little bit of Rafa Benitez, right? A great coach, but quite, I wouldn't say safety first, but quite defensive-minded, structured his team around a very solid defence. At Aston Villa, I think he's shown an evolution in that thinking. And that, I think, shows his intelligence. There aren't many managers who can evolve with the way the game changes. 
Alex Ferguson was a great example of somebody who could do that. The great is he the best of all times for Alex? Hard to argue against it, isn't it? Um, the longevity of his career and the the way he could change with the way the game changed. He could be managing to this day, and I bet he'd have United up competing for the title. Um, getting players playing to their absolute limits. It reminds me of Onar Emery. Emery has got players at Aston Villa who I think are overlooked and underrated. I think John McGinn could be a Alex Ferguson, Manchester United level player. I think that's what he is. I think he's a player who people don't necessarily look at and think there's Neymar with all his skills. But he's a player who never, ever stops working. And he's a player who has actual real quality. Um, and you're seeing that under Unai Emery. Unai Emery is getting the absolute maximum out of that player. Douglas Louise has gone from a player who has looked real quality at times but couldn't find that consistency at Villa, whether that was the coaches putting him in the wrong position. I mean, he, he had to play CDM a lot. And having Bubakar Kamara come in to play that CDM role beside him to allow Douglas Luiz to be more expressive and attacking. And fair play to Gerard. You've got to give him credit for bringing Kamara in. Of course you do. But, you know, Douglas Luiz wasn't performing really under Steven Gerrard. Since Emery's come in, Douglas Luiz now looks like, I would say, one of the best midfielders in the world. I think he could play for a team starting in centre midfield for a team that wins uh, a Champions League trophy. He's scoring goals for fun. He's technically so good at not just scoring goals, but doing the defensive work, at linking up play, of instructing other players of what to do. His clever little drag backs, when he's in, he's got other players around him and you think, oh no, he's run out of space. He'll do a little drag back once or twice and suddenly he's got, it feels like he's got another acre. It feels like he's just gone exploring and discovered a whole new land. You know, like Columbus landing in, you know, the new world. A whole ocean of land has just opened up to him and he, and he finds a pass. There's not many players in world football who can do that. And I can't help but look at him and think, Man City wanted to spend £80 million on Lucas Paqueta, who is a very, very quality player. But you saw Paqueta for West Ham and you saw Douglas Luiz for Aston Villa. Why would Brazil and Man City choose Paqueta over Douglas Luiz? Luiz is playing a bit like Gundogan did at City. Now, of course... As Villa fans, we're sort of, um, you know, expectant that a northern club is going to come in and bid an absolute boatload for our players. That's historically what's been happening. But I can't help but feel there is a sea change at Villa. And I'm not saying that we're not going to see some of our absolute best players leave and go for big fees, right? But I feel like Villa are in a, a place where we've hopefully future-proofed that, with the with Monchi coming in to work alongside Unai Emery. The jury's still out on Monchi. We'll see how he does. He obviously has an exceptional track record at Sevilla going back over 20 years. His recent history isn't as exceptional, but who's to say that at Aston Villa, he might not refine that. I mean, he still made some good signings in recent times at Sevilla, but there were some that weren't great, and obviously the Roma experience wasn't great. But Monchi working in close quarters with Unai Emery, with Vida Ghani, I can't help, and with that scouting department Villa have as well, which is now exceptional, and you have to credit Johan Lang for helping to build that. You have to say that Aston Villa hopefully have future-proofed themselves so that, you know, if, if a great player of ours does go on, we're in a good spot to find somebody who can just come straight in and do the business, like Brighton have done. Now, again, I'm not saying I want that to happen, but if that were to happen, I think we're in a good spot. And I think Unai Emery is a big, big part of that. As I say, getting players playing to their absolute best. And Douglas Luiz now looks like a player who should be playing, starting in centre midfield for Brazil. When have you ever said that about an Aston Villa midfielder? I mean, not for a long time. Not for a long bloody time. So Douglas Luiz and John McGinn. And, you know, I'll go back to start with Emery. His first game, 3-1 against Manchester United. I was there in 1995. 
when we beat them 3-1. I was there with all my Irish relatives and my granddad. Amazing memories. And I could never have imagined watching that game and never win anything with kids match that it would be 27 years before I saw Aston Villa beat Manchester United at, at Villa Park again. And Unai Emery set his stall out by ending that curse on his first day, beating them 3-1. And that game, the whole send sucked that ball into the net. The biggest mistake Man United made in that game was switching ends, forcing us to play to the whole send in the first half. Well, guess what, dickheads? Leon Bailey scores a great goal straight away and Jacob Ramsey creates it by finding space, turning and putting the ball into him. And already we were quickly seeing that Bailey was playing off the Watkins, so there was more mobility and speed. Diaby now plays that role. And Jacob Ramsey was playing kind of where Zaniolo was against West Ham in that kind of box shape, turning, running directly at at the opposition defence and Ramsey's so good at that. Defenders hate playing against him. And again, Ramsey, another player who I look at and think, this lad, he's a Champions League level player. He is. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant, brilliant player. All round, excellent. And this box shape that Villa play, I'll get to that in a minute because the Manchester United 3-1 was the moment where we set that stall out and Villa became... Suddenly the belief was back, wasn't it? And next week, after that, we go to Brighton away. And again, Brighton at the time with De Zerbi, top-class team. You're thinking Villa have not been great this season. Maybe that first game, you know, the energy got us through it, the crowd and everything. We turned up to Bright, uh, Brighton. I think we were 1-0 down after a mistake from Doug Louise. McAllister scored. End of the game, McAllister makes a mistake. Doug Louise takes it off him and we win 2-1. What a way to start that was. We had the World Cup break. But after that, if you remember, Villa looked like a team that we were a little bit patchy, right? So we played Liverpool on Boxing Day and lost 3-1. And you could see the ideas were there, but because we were playing a high line, Liverpool were getting in behind us constantly. And that game could have been 7-1 to Liverpool, right? But there was no need for panic. You just sensed... You know what? Like, I, I see the ideas here. I see something building. And Arsenal fans said the same thing about Arteta when he started there. And there were some really dodgy results under Arteta at first. Some really dodgy things. Didn't they go two months without a win or something at one point? But you could see that there was the, the nucleus of something, an idea building. And under Emery, against that in, Liverpool, in that Liverpool game, you could see there was something there. Now, after that, we, we followed it up with a 2-0 win away at Spurs. When did Aston Villa of the past ever bloody go and do that? If Villa lost 3-1 on Boxing Day to Liverpool, we'd then follow it up by going to Spurs and losing 2-0, and then we'd probably play someone like Wigan Athletic at home, thinking, right, we'll get back in form now and lose three bloody nil. You know. that, That was the Villa we'd come to know and don't love for the last kind of 10, 15 years. But instead, we went to Spurs and won 2-0. And after that, we then played Wolves and we drew 1-1. And Wolves again, first half, they were dominant. Danny Pedent scored, I remember. But then Danny Ings came on and scored and equalised for us. Now, Ings was sold shortly after that. And I remember at the time, there was a lot of questions about it because Emery... Selling Ings uh, left us just with Watkins up front. And, you know, you worry about injuries. And he also cleared out a lot of the sort of, I don't want to, you know, call it dead wood, but players that were in the squad but weren't really going to feature under him. Morgan Sanson left. Um, you know, a couple of other players went off. Went off. Uh, he loaned out a couple of players uh, as well. And... Um, Alex Moreno came in. Alex Moreno was a transformative signing. £14 million. What a player. Villa's left-hand side was like something Professor and I was watering, like the like a great gardener, right? The best gardener you've ever seen. Watering all the plants at Buckingham Palace. And suddenly, they're all bloomed. They all came to life. And Alex Moreno was that, beating a man. And I still think, despite Villa being so good this season... And Luca Dean playing very well. 
I still think we miss that dynamic of Alex Moreno just beating a man and pulling the ball back. I don't think opposition teams dealt with it at all last season. And I really hope we get to see him again soon. But on the Danny Ings sale, Danny Ings was signed for £30 million and he was past his peak and he was on big wages of 125k a week, apparently. I don't, I don't know the official number, but he was on big wages. FFP, that's not very smart. And I think we made a few signings under Gerard in that year that weren't the smartest. They were a bit a bit Everton. And I think getting a fee for him of 15 million and getting those wages off the books and seeing the way Ings has played at West Ham, no offence against him. I really like Danny Ings. I think he's a very talented player. But I think it proved a smart sale from Unai Emery. you got to think, take these things into consideration. And I think that's what Emery did. I think Emery looked at Ollie Watkins, saw what he'd done, and he wasn't in the best form at the time, Watkins, if you remember. But what Emery saw in, in him something that was, this is my man, this is the striker, and he's going to play 90 minutes every week, and he's not going to have the lingering question mark over him that the signing of Danny Ings did uh, when he came in, because Ings came in and you thought, what does this mean for Watkins? Are we going to change formation from 4-3-3? Does Watkins go out wide? What is it? Instead, Emery made him his main man and the confidence immediately came back into him and he scored something like 10 games in a row, was it? 10 goals in something like that. Watkins, again, like Douglas Ruiz and McGinn, as I mentioned, went up a level. But Villa, again, was still quite patchy, particularly at home. We looked very convincing away, but at home, at the start, we were quite patchy. We just about got that draw with Wolves. We played Leeds and we beat them 2-1. But... Um, Leeds scored through Bamford and that last 10 minutes they battered us again could have conceded but again you didn't lose confidence because you felt there was something building there you could see something was changing Villa because we were playing actually good football we were encouraged to retain the ball rather than just belt it forward and hope for the best it looked like there was an actual game plan and structure in place for every single game right sorry I'm rambling on here Bob Dylan writing a song about this called A Rambling Man about some saddo who talks about Villa on his own for bloody ages. But I'm loving life under Unai Emery. And if, you, if you're enjoying listening to this, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I genuinely do. And I'd love to hear from you and your thoughts as well, what you think. Uh, just comment on YouTube or comment on, you know, anywhere, really, uh, on a social on the, any of the social media places, whatever. But we... Um, then went on a three-game losing streak. Remember, we lost 4-2 to Leicester, where again, that high line, we looked very open. And James Madison, wonderful player, tore it, he tore it apart, really, didn't he? He, he? he caused us a lot of problems. And I think it was Tete as well, maybe, at Leicester, caused us problems that day. But Villa looked good in attack, but defensively very vulnerable. And then we lost to Man City 3-1, which I think... You know, we were very poor in that game. And then we played Arsenal, in which we were very good, but last minute conceded a, you know, a very unfortunate OG through Emi Martinez. And then, you know, at the end when he Martinez ran forward, tried to score from a corner and uh, Emery after the game criticised him for it. Uh, and Emery mentioned in his excellent interview with the Times recently that his abiding memory of a chat he had with Alex Ferguson and why Wayne Rooney had not played at the time when Wayne Rooney was at his peak in a Champions League game between Ferguson's United and Emery's Valencia. Ferguson said he had to know who was boss. And Emery, you know, Emmy Martinez, we all love him. Emmy Martinez is, I think, the best goalkeeper in the world. He's the best shot stopper in the world. He's the reason the greatest player of all time won the World Cup and the Copa America. Or he's a, or he's a big reason. I'm not sure Argentina do it without Emmy Martinez. But Emery was able to say to him, you know, a player who's larger than life, look, you, you shouldn't have done it and let him know who was the boss. And Martinez has the maturity to deal with it. As you can see from his continuing performances at Villa. Amazing. But Villa after that, after that three-game losing streak, you still never quite lost faith in it because you could see something was building. And lo and behold, after that loss to Arsenal, Villa went 10 games unbeaten. And in that, we had some absolutely incredible results. The best result I've seen at Aston Villa maybe in my life 
I'm trying to think of results that compare to it. Through beating Man United three one in the Coca-Cola Cup final in '94, a game I was at the old Wembley. Uh, beating Blues five one. Uh, beating Arsenal three two when we were two down at half time. Beat the great Wenger side of '98 coming back. You know these were all fantastic results, and the three one against United when uh, Emery took over. But that three nil against Newcastle in amongst that ten game winning. Uh, unbeaten streak that result against Newcastle Newcastle last season were the unstoppable force right and it was the acid test for Villa that it was the bit you know we'd had a run of fixtures that you'd look at and think you know some of the, the stats experts out there who are on YouTube saying Emery got lucky and whatever else and we're looking at the underlying numbers and Villa's look's going to run out or whatever yeah right you're probably looking at that game and thinking that's where it might happen. That's that's where Isaac's going to get his his hat trick. Aston Villa three, Newcastle nil. It was from the first second to the very last. Villa tactically worked Newcastle out, and nobody else, bar maybe Liverpool, did that last season to Newcastle. Nobody, nobody made Newcastle look so utterly lost. Everybody was at it. And, you know, John McGinn stuck out on the right, giving Dan Byrne the worst day of his life. Ollie Watkins just on fire. That ain't recency bias, Gareth Southgate. It's three seasons, now going to be four seasons in a row of a player who's been absolutely elite with his movement, been absolutely elite under Unai Emery and scoring double figures every season. And I hope he gets over 20 this season. Recency biased my fecking ass, but you know you you think back on that run and you look at that Newcastle game and that was the game where you really felt we've seen the signs we're on a good run but teams average teams don't do that to Newcastle they lost only five games that season at that point of the season in April they only lost three at that point. It was an incredible result. Now, we then lost at United and we lost at Wolves. And again, you say the Villa of old, two disappointing losses like that. And we're under pressure to get into Europe. And we've got three tough games. of, We've got Spurs away, uh, Spurs at home. We've got Liverpool away. And we've got Brighton at home. Brighton going after Europe. Tottenham after Europe. Liverpool on a seven-game winning streak. Who've sort of, it looked like they just refound their form. And they're showing it still this season. Beat Spurs 2-1, ending a hoodoo that had gone on for an absolute bloody forever. Went to Liverpool. Toughest game you can imagine at that point. What did we do? We drew one all. Having, and conceded only in the 90th minute. And then we held on for about eight minutes of injury time where God only knows where that came from. Epic. And then the last game of the season, the pressure's on. You're playing Brighton, European rivals, and you get your win, 2-1. That is not the Aston Villa we've grown up with, or I've grown up with. Many of you listening will have seen the great Aston Villa of the, the late, great Ron Saunders, our greatest manager, of, you know, excluding you know the early 1900s or late 1800s. But um, Villa of old don't do that, but this Villa do do it. Now, we've come into this season with an absolute spate of terrible injuries, right? You've got Tyrone Ming's traumatic injury, which I think was a big part of what I still think was a freakish result at Newcastle. And that's not to undermine how good Newcastle are. They're a great team. Eddie Coach has really proven himself that he might not just be a flash, a one-season wonder. And a fan base at a, at a stadium, you can't hold it. You know, they've got it. They're run by a nation state. Uh, so they have inbuilt advantages that only Man City can compare with. I have all these problems with nation-state ownership. Different matter. But you can't hold it against them with their fan base in that stadium. They're bloody loud, aren't they? But, you know, Villa lose 5-1 and we lose Tyron Mings to a traumatic injury. Emi Buendia, a few days before we lose to an injury. Jacob Ramsey's out at that point long-term. Alex Moreno's out at that point long-term. We lose 5-1. And you're thinking, the Villa of old don't bounce back from this. 
And they look around at the injuries and we all start to feel sorry for ourselves. Next game, Everton turn up at Villa Park, sit deep, and the Villa of old don't break down a team that sit deep. Do you know what happens? We'd probably have a lot of the possession. We wouldn't create many chances, but we'd have one big half chance we'd all be talking about and thinking, oh, I wish that had gone in. And then what would happen? 60th minute, Dominic Calvin-Lewin scores it from a corner. Villa then dominate for the rest of the game and we lose 1-0. What happened this time? Everton tried to sit deep and Aston Villa, with Moussa Diaby leading the charge, tore them apart. 4-0. We were incredible. Beat Burnley 3-1 away. We've lost twice this season and the the only... I'll say Newcastle was a freakish event. Liverpool, I'll give massive credit to. I think tactically they were superb, and Jurgen Klopp's an amazing manager. I think I can't you can't hold it against them. I think a lot of things went their way with us conceding early, making an early mistake in defence, but they were great. But um, again, you after that three 0 what did Villa do? Bounce back with big wins, and we've just beaten a team that are so heavily raved about. Deserbi's the next Guardiola and all that. Media darlings, Villa sort of going under the radar for some God only knows reason. And we beat them 6-1. Ordinary teams don't beat Brighton 6-1. And I, I, I listened to a few podcasts after that outside of Villa. And one of them, the biggest football podcast in the world, said, with one of the pundits on it, Imply that they're not a big fan of the Villa fan base. Now, I think that's a weird thing to say, particularly on a podcast that I think is a great podcast and one that, you know, is neutral. I think it's a weird thing to say that the Villa fan base winds up. I don't really understand why you find a fan base annoying. Um, individuals within fan bases can be, you know, annoying and certain elements of fan bases can be, you know, unpleasant. But to write off a whole fan base is ridiculous in my mind. Anyway, it's, you could see the kind of, dislike for Villa come out when he said results like that are going to happen to Brighton Villa it's implying that basically it was just a bit lucky right right what did Villa go and do then played West Ham at home and West Ham don't concede goals David Moyes uh, has got them bang at it this season, reacted really well to losing Declan Rice. I have massive respect for West Ham and what Moyes has done there. And I, I looked at it and it was a game I didn't fancy because I just never liked playing West Ham. And we go and beat them 4-1. Ordinary teams don't beat Brighton 6-1. Ordinary teams don't then follow that up by beating West Ham 4-1 and playing both sides off the park. Ordinary teams, lucky teams, don't win 11 times in a row at home. You're not lucky. You can look at all the stats in the world and all the underlying stats you want. Sometimes the eye test tells you, doesn't it? Sometimes you sit there in Villa Park and you think of 30 years of watching Aston Villa be underwhelming, not live up to the potential that they have always had with managers who some have had great spells, some have had good moments, but never quite getting Villa to the point where you really believe this is it. The eye test tells you to sometimes, those to, to tell you that those underlying stats ain't always telling you the whole picture, right? And this is why, you know, stats are really important in football. There's a whole reason data is so important and why football clubs have data uh, visualization and data teams. Brilliant. If I was a football manager, I want the best in the world at it. Of course I would. But sometimes you can look at those things and not see the full picture. And sometimes you've got to watch the team with your own eyes. And what I've watched with my own eyes at Aston Villa, and I go all the way back to the Crystal Palace 1 0 that I went to at Villa Park in, in March. And what I've been witnessing is a team playing football in a way that I've never seen at Villa. A team that is ignoring fans who get all jittery and moan when they hold on to it in defence and said, I ain't going to listen to some guy in the third row who's moaning and complaining and wants me to just boot it long. Instead, I'm going to listen to Unai Emery who's telling me, be patient because you're a professional footballer and you're actually brilliant at football. 
and you don't need to kick it long. You can, you're actually really comfortable on the ball. Hold on to it. And if you're a, if your teammate has been listening to Unai Emery's coaching, to Pacquiao Sterren's coaching, to Austin McPhee's coaching, if they've been listening to them, they'll have moved into a position which enables you to pass the ball into their feet. And guess what? The opposition team are putting pressure on and it's opening gaps behind them. And, you know, you look back at Emmy Martinez, he ain't just there to save shots, pass it to his feet. And Emmy Martinez doesn't have to boot it long all the time. And other wide players come deep for him, pass it into him. And, oh, look, there's a CDM who's come deep, pass it into him and work a triangle. And then the left-back's bombed on. The opposition team are at sixes and bloody sevens. Patience, intelligence, calmness. As they say in Italy, karma. witnessing this at Aston Villa has been very special and very, very unique. And I'll go to the um, Brighton game, tactically out of possession. Douglas Luiz coming forward and standing right beside um, their CDM, who would normally receive the ball from the keeper. Diaby and Watkins being close to him allowing their keeper to stand on the ball for a full minute if he wanted to. Waiting for him to pass it out wide and then the wide player has no option in the middle. And then as soon as Villa win it back, you've suddenly got three players close together and Diaby and Watkins can move quick. And they can quick interchanges from Louise to, to the other two. Intelligent, smart coaching. Against West Ham, the box shape. I said this before on the, the last podcast, and I'll say it again. Bas- Pep Guardiola's Barcelona played like a small-sided team playing 11 aside. You had six-a-side teams. When I played six-a-side, you'd keep it on the deck, right? And there's no point booting it long because it's on AstroTurf, so it's just going to bounce out of play. Why would you do that? The only time you'd knock it long is if you really are... It's a calculated gamble where you're really convinced this is going to make it, right? But you're genuinely encouraged to just play it into feet, quick movement, and the ball zips along the floor. So your touch improves. And instinctively, you get better at movement. That's why I've always believed at youth level, young players should play small-sided games and play technical games like football, the Brazilian sport, where you knock a ball over the net, two on two, one touch each, right? Instead, what I grew up with in this country, and I played to a decentish level at youth football, you know, not the worst level in the world. What I grew up with, my first ever game in 11 aside was age seven on an 11 aside man's pitch with a bunch of dads on the sidelines screaming at yelling and a group of seven year olds to knock it long on a man sized pitch. Playing for Noel FC against Coldland Colts in Solihull. We won 1 0, by the way. I mean, that's what we grew up with here. Knock it long. And what we've witnessed at Aston Villa is a team now who don't just resort to knocking it long. And you can see it in English football with so many great players coming through, the Jack Grealishes of the world, Jude Bellingham, Phil Foden, Cole Palmer, technically wonderful, wonderful players. And at Aston Villa... You're seeing players like John McGinn, who you would not necessarily have thought he's the best technical player in the world. But you know what? He's a Premier League player, so actually he's technically really good. And he's playing really, really well. He looks comfortable on the ball. And in that box shape, I've rambled on a bit there, sorry. But in that box shape, you got players who are close together who are playing almost in like a -a five-a-side pitch within an 11-a-side pitch. And you saw it the other day when the ball came into McGinn and West Ham just looked in their 4-2-3-1 a bit static. And McGinn just one touch around the corner into Diaby, who'd come deep. Diaby then takes the ball, passes it straight into Ollie Watkins' touch, and he hits it wide, right? Zaniolo finding a little bit of space in behind James Ward-Prowse, intelligently coached. Henry probably told him to do that. And at all times in that midfield, it just feels like there's a ball on, right? And then if that in that middle, because they're so close together and they, they can play quick interchanges, if they then need to turn, they've got a winger who's bombed on and get it out to the winger to spread the play more. And then, you know what, if the opposition defence 
has defended really well and boxed you in and you can't really move it forward, pass it back and take your time. Look at the levels all those defenders have got to. Tyron Mings had reached Ty the God of Thunder levels. He was absolutely supreme under Unai Emery last season. Look at Esri Concer, Rolls-Royce defender. He drive, you know, bloody Del Boy dreams of driving that Rolls-Royce and only fools and horses. And Southgate's not picking him. So look, it's been a full year of Unai Emery and I can't help but feel like I'm in Professor Emery's University. I feel like we're witnessing something quite special. Now, look, I'm not saying that this is going to run on forever and ever and ever. And at some point, we're probably going to hit patchy form again. But you can't help but look at these players and think, I think they've got the mentality and the coach who's been there and done it and will get them out of whatever trouble we may find in future, right? We've still got tests to come, you know? We're going to have Arsenal's and Cities and Liverpool's and Spurs and United's all to come to Villa Park, right? And we're going to have to go away to a lot of these teams as well. And it's going to be tough. We've got Europe as well. Again, another asset test, something we're still adapting to. We've, we had a disappointing result at Warsaw. We huffed and puffed against Mostar. But this is all part of a learning process. Europe is a different beast. And Villa are new to Europe. We've not been there for a very, very long time. So we're going to have to be patient with it again, just as we were patient at the start with Emery when there were times at home where we looked very vulnerable and the high line looked vulnerable. But we stuck with it and it ended up working because Unai Emery knows what the bloody hell he's doing. Now, you know, the top eight this season in the Premier League is the strongest I think I've ever seen. You could pick and choose any of those four. You know, let's put City at the top, but you could pick three out of eight. And if they're in the top four at the end of the season, you'd go, yeah, I can see that. I can see it. And I would argue that teams like Brighton and West Ham are going to be differentiators at the end of the season, where I think that teams like United and Arsenal, if they draw or lose to those two sorts of teams, which they could do, it will cost them at the end of the season. Aston Villa have gone and beaten both of them. Emery has ended curses for fun. Tottenham, who we'd never, we, we seem to just lose to for 15 years straight. Beat them twice last season. West Ham, who we didn't beat in 10 years, eight years, 10 games. Beat them 4-1. Man United, we didn't beat in 27 years at Villa Park. Beat them 3-1. Went to Anfield. Didn't lose, drew one all. Wolves and Molyneux, the place that we keep losing at. What happened? Drew one all. Almost won it with the last header of the game. You know, uh, I just feel like we, you know, we, we, we're living through something quite special. And I think that I've learned myself from watching Emery. I think I've learned more about football watching Emery's Aston Villa. I think that I've. Um, you know, come to enjoy watching football. You know, it's in a way that I haven't for a long time. And um, I kind of just want to hear what you think as well. I want to know what your thoughts have been on Emery's year in charge. I want to know what you, you know, think about where Villa are going in future. Because I look at Villa now and I think, you know, I'm not going to, pretend that I think we're going to finish above Man City this season. But I can't help but look at Villa and think we keep proving people wrong. And I hope that that's our mentality now. I hope our mentality is one that where we think we can prove people wrong. And I hope the players have that. And I hope the fans have that. And I know that Unai Emery has that. He listened to Unai Emery after the West Ham game and he's saying, Douglas Ruiz was superb, but there was that moment where he relaxed too much. For like a minute, two minutes, when West Ham got that goal and you know were at us. And that's where he, that's his level. He ain't happy to just see you play well for 89 minutes. He wants to see you play well for 90 minutes. He wants to see Douglas Louise, who he knows can be the greatest midfielder or one of the best midfielders in the world, and he already is. But to be the very, very best, you don't relax at any moment ever. 
to have a manager like that is very special. To have a manager who always speaks well, to have a manager who never passes the book. Because I tell you in life, and I genuinely believe this, that the, and I said this on the audio podcast the other day, so sorry if I'm repeating myself, but the very best managers in the world, whether that's in football, whether that's in acting and drama with directors, whether that's in, you know, whether you work in a, a, a corner shop or you work in a, uh, a warehouse, wherever it is, the best managers in the world are not people who walk around as Billy bullshit, right? They're not the people who belittle you to make themselves feel big. They're not the people who, you know, flash the cash and say, look at me, didn't I make it big? Without mentioning sometimes that they maybe got a little bit lucky at times. It's not the people that neg you, right? And try and make you feel small about yourself in some way thinking that's going to get you to get the best out of yourself. It's not people saying to Tyra Mings, look me in the eye. It's people like Unai Emery looking at Douglas Louise, praising the guy, but telling him, don't relax. It's people like Unai Emery looking at fantastic goalkeepers like Emmy Martinez, a player who's just won the World Cup, and saying to him, why did you go up in the 90th minute? Because we've just conceded another goal. And the statistics show historically that, yeah, you'll see the odd amazing goal from a keeper, but the likelihood is it's not going to happen and the opposition team is probably going to score. And being able to lay the law down without alienating the guy. It's people like Uno Emery looking at Ollie Watkins and probably telling him, you are my man. You're a great striker. You have so many good attributes, but you need to stand here, not there. Don't make this run, do this run. And I'm sure he watched Ollie Watkins against West Ham. And I'm sure he's, he's highlighted to him, this is what he did really well. But there was this one moment here where he could have moved this way. And I'm sure that's what Ollie Watkins, with an elite mentality, as a super striker, with a top attitude, I'm sure that's what he wants in life. I'm sure that he wants somebody who looks at him, recognises his talent, recognises how good he actually is, but tells him this is how you can get even better because you have a ceiling that's even higher than that. And it's being realistic with it. You know, it's not just looking at someone and deluding them that they're going to be Lionel Messi. It's not Uno Emery looking at me and telling me I'm going to be a Premier League player because, of course, I'm not because I haven't got the ability. But it's looking at players who do have the ability and recognizing the level that they can get to. And he doesn't do it by negging, he doesn't do it by Billy bullshitting at you. He doesn't do it like Gordon Ramsay does, that dickhead chef yelling in people's faces, telling them how garbage they are and thinking somehow that's going to get them up to the highest standard they can. I mean, good Lord. Did you did you hear Ramsay talking to Jake Humphrey, nodding along on, uh, you know, about his Porsche and that 20K or whatever? Shut up, mate. What I'm talking about is that I feel like I've witnessed a manager who I have learned more about football from just by watching his Villa play. I feel like I've learned about what a great manager is just by listening to him and seeing the results and seeing the players improving. Just by hearing the class he shows in how he talks about Aston Villa and the fan base. And who knows where it goes in future. And people might take excerpts from this in future if it all goes pear-shaped. Not that I think it will, but if it ever did somehow. And they'll go, listen to this guy. What a joker. La la, LOL. Uh, you know, yeah, whatever, man. I'm only talking about what I've seen for the last year and what I believe can happen. And I think that Aston Villa, I still hear that tone in people's in voices that Villa, you know, they're lucky to be there or... Yeah, Villa will probably slip away when, you know, City and Arsenal, they deserve to be up there. No one believed that Tottenham could do it. People would have laughed at you in the year 2008 when Tottenham had spent years being just like Everton and Villa in mid-table, trying to push forward and then always falling away when it happened and being the punchline, lads, it's Tottenham, right? Always losing on the big occasion. And I know they haven't won trophies, but bloody hell, they've been pushing for league titles. They've finished second. They've finished top four consistently. They've got to a Champions League final. Who would have dreamt in 2008 that Tottenham could do that? And they did it. 
Now, of course, they have that great stadium and that's going to bring, you know, they've got a lot of inbuilt advantages, being based in London, transport, um, the facilities, the food, the bars, the concourses. That's stuff off the pitch that Villa have to catch up on. That's for a different episode to talk about. But, you know, you look at Tottenham back then and you think people laughed at them. You look at Atletico Madrid, people laughed at them for years. They were rubbish. The, a, a, a comedy show. Diego Simeone came in and rise into a high level. Just as Harry Redknapp and uh, Mauricio Pochettino did at Tottenham. And Martin Yol, just as those guys did at Tottenham. They found that inspirational person, an individual, who could lift that club to the full potential of where it should be. And I can't help but look at Aston Villa. I can't help but look at Uno Emery. I can't help but look at the clubs like Atletico Madrid and Tottenham, who historically are similar levels, similar levels to Aston Villa, though neither of them have won a European Cup like Villa have. I can't help but look at them and think Aston Villa should look at those two teams and think, if they did it, why can't we? I don't know where we're going to finish this season. I think it's the most competitive top eight I've ever seen in my life. I think there's so many brilliant teams in there. We're very lucky to see this league, to be honest, this season. Particularly if you're a neutral, I think it's a it's a top top league to watch. But uh, with what I'm seeing at Aston Villa, I'm overjoyed. And all I can say is thank you, Unai Emery, for what you've done at Villa this season. I can't wait to see what more comes. And... Uh, I'm confident that, you know, if we, if we hit a rocky spell, Emery will have the know-how to get us out of it and turn it around again. Good times ahead. Good times ahead. Let me know what you think. Please like and subscribe. Please comment. Please leave nice reviews. I'm sorry I've rambled on. I promise after the two last audio episodes where I've just rambled on myself, a rambling man, as Bob Dylan would call me, um, that we'll have back to the normal two-person show as usual in future but i thought i'd do this because obviously i can't do a guest episode now that i'm going to spain um for the next few days for work um but you know god i wish i was going to give praise for uno emery and i probably will when i'm there thank you uno emery for a brilliant year and i look forward to what comes ahead let me know what you think oh the mighty Good luck.